Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we are here with you. We really lined this up date-wise, even though like most anniversaries are fives and tens. Date-wise, we are recording this on like the anniversary, I believe, of the release of the Blair Witch Project. What? To be clear, the mass release, because this is another one of those movies that like started at Sundance back in January of 1999. And didn't get like a full theatrical until July. But uh, right, right. it is around this time that it originally came out. Because we're seeing all the things on social media too. Celebrating the release. Like the on this day. You know what's funny is they released it in the middle of the summer. Yeah. But this movie was filmed during like spoopy season. Yep. So like it's just strange to me that they wouldn't just wait for like a fall or autumn release. I think up until Paranormal Activity kind of blew it out, this had the highest ratio of budget to earnings because the budget on this movie was ten grand, and the take on this movie was two hundred and thirty eight million. And so it was like or something like that. I'm sure that math doesn't pan out, but the ratio ended up being like one dollar spent for every ten thousand dollars earned. That's wild. So like pretty big margin there. And I think it was only ousted by Paranormal Activity. I mean, several years later. Yeah. Almost 10 years later. 2007? Yeah, I think so. The first one. You know what this movie just missed in terms of releases, which does kind of make sense. It came out right about the same time as The Haunting. Yeah. Yeah. I read that. And it just missed The Sixth Sense, which came out a month later in August. And as we know, The Sixth Sense was a super big, you know, it's kind of straddling that line between horror, thriller, etc. But that became such a culturally important movie, which I would argue Blair Witch Project totally is as well. Yeah. So, you know, The Haunting was like a big budget horror movie, like really big, huge, big names. Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones were in it. Mm -hmm. Little baby Luke Wilson is in it, too. It's like one of his first big roles. But it Blair Witch Project blew The Haunting out of the water. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, like handily. Mm -hmm. And nobody really talks about The Haunting ever anymore no we do on our patreon occasionally because that's right you know we're we're just wrapping up uh haunting of hill house and haunting is another adaptation of shirley jackson's haunting of hill house go follow us on patreon if you want to hear about that just saying and please and thank you support all of our hijinks (laughs) (laughs) yeah so maybe that was like a tactic thing on their part was you know Released it a little bit earlier outside of spooky season, missed the end of summer blockbusters, missed the spooky season, and hit people in the summer. Well, what I'm wondering is if it had to do with the marketing campaign. Because, right, right. you know, going into and coming out of Sundance, they really had this amazing marketing campaign going for this film. And I just wonder, like, 
how long that would have been sustainable. Like it feels like six months was about as far as they could go with it before people started catching wise. I mean, it's amazing that they were able to go six months because you couldn't go six seconds today without people debunking the whole thing. They even had a trailer that made this movie look real before Star Wars Phantom Menace. Like Mm -hmm. that's how big the marketing campaign was for this and how clever it was ultimately. Yeah, apparently at the debut, like the art house debut of the film, did you say it was Cannes or Sundance? Sundance. Okay, so at the Sundance premiere, they hung missing posters for the three main actors because they were really like rolling with this. Mm -hmm. They ended up taking them down because apparently a studio executive had actually been kidnapped. So they were like, oh, "Oh, this is probably bad form. The studio executive was fine. He was found. No, no issues. But at the point in time, they were like, probably shouldn't have up missing posters for people who are not actually missing, like around the theater. Wow. Well, they even went as far as on IMDb, which was very much in its infancy at the time. I mean, the site that would become IMDb goes back much further to really the early days of the internet, the sort of listserv community. But IMDb proper as named has been around since 1998. And so people were just starting to use it. I didn't know about it back then. But they went so far as to list the three leads whose characters were at the time their real names. Um, Heather Donahue has since changed her name and now goes by Ray Hans. They used their names on the IMDb page and said that they were deceased to the point where her mother was getting condolence cards. Holy crap. Yeah. That's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. And to your point, this is something that would be so hard to pull off today. It oh, would yeah. Be incredibly hard because people would be like, well, I just checked the public records and nobody has a missing persons report. Yeah. Or like, you know, there'd be a leak or something like that. You know, somebody who worked on the film would leak it, read it, would go down this whole rabbit hole, blah, blah, blah. So there's a little bit of the mystique that's kind of not possible to achieve now. Not that you could never capture this again. I think it's possible. It's very possible. I was kind of reflecting on this. There's a really good piece that I'm going to reference a couple of times today in Bloody Disgusting that was actually written earlier this year by Mike Holtz. And the headline, it's an editorial, is here's what it was like to believe the Blair Witch Project was real in 1999. And I instantly wanted to read this because I am the exact right age. And I believed it was real in 1999, like saw it in the theater, the whole thing. And although my experience was a little different than his throughout the course of the article, so many of the points he brings about are absolutely true. You know, you couldn't just whip out your smartphone and Google something. Even if you had a computer in your home at the time, which not everybody did, you had to dial up. Search engines were not as sophisticated at the time. There were certainly online forums, but not for literally everything. They were super specialized. A lot of your average internet users, especially young folks, didn't know how to access these things yet. So it's really phenomenal, but I was asking the same question. You know, I was Mm -hmm. going, could you ever do this now? And I think it's like a yes and no thing. You could never do this. But I think about the early days of fiction podcasting, Mm -hmm. like black tapes, Mm -hmm. like Polybius, Mm -hmm. that people actually legitimately thought Polybius was real. And there were 
actual news stories about it and the producers had to come out and be like uh, hello this is fiction mm-hmm. podcasting was newer at the time so i think as new technologies new forms of media arise there is like that opportunity for that flash in the pan thing not to the extent as this but when paranormal activity came out some people did think it was real mm-hmm. that was debunked a lot quicker though right so just brief tiny recap on the Blair Witch Project, because there's not a whole lot of exposition that you need to know about going into this. But essentially, the movie is about three film students who are on the hunt for the Blair Witch and to explore the myth of the Blair Witch in the Maryland forest, just outside of Burkittsville, Maryland. And our main cast of characters, I'll go over four people. We have Heather, Michael, or Mike, and Josh. And they went by their real names in the film just to reduce confusion, to make it seem more like it's real, which it does very much so. Mm-hmm. But I did also want to mention Mary Brown in yeah. this because I think that she's a really important part of the movie. So Heather, Josh, and Mike are three film students, but Mary Brown is this person that they kind of interview prior to entering the woods. And I think it really skeezes them out and like sets them off their game to hear this woman who they originally think is crazy come back and like tell this whole story of how she saw this witch when she was a girl. Mm -hmm. And as the course of the movie goes on, they start to believe her more and more or her story starts to get to them. And I think like worm into their head a little bit more. Definitely. So I wanted to kind of shout her out. She also was, um, she worked in the art department too for this movie because at the time when they were making this movie, they really did kind of a guerrilla filmmaking process. Absolutely, yes. Where they were like, hey, college kids, can you come and help? And not a single one of them came to help. Her name is Patricia Deku. I called her Mary Brown, which is her character's name. But she's like, I'll help. And she kind of had exactly the look that they were going for. And she was able to help out otherwise. So all good there. But basically, Heather, Mike, and Josh are like the three main cast of characters. They're the only ones you see after a certain point in the movie all the way up to the very end. Yeah. The beauty of this film is how simple it is. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly, incredibly simple and yet so very effective. I want to read this quote really quick. Yeah. This is the quote from the opening of the film. And I'm going to read this because like, it still gives me chills to watch this come up on the screen. It says, in October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. And like reading that, seeing it again when I was watching it, I know that folks who maybe didn't get in the hype in 99 when this movie was coming out, it might be lost on them. But for me, even though I know it's not real, you know, it's been debunked, all these people are still alive, blah, blah, blah. It still freaks me out so hard. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is this is not the first found footage film. Right. Um, Found footage can be traced back to Cannibal Holocaust. Right. And then this is actually Cannibal Holocaust kicked off sort of the first generation of found footage. And then the second generation really was kicked off by the last broadcast. Mm -hmm. But nobody really knew about that movie outside of really indie circles until Blair Witch happened. So Mm -hmm. Blair Witch is credited as kicking off the second wave, which would then inspire paranormal activity which kicked off the third wave that said that opening to me is so reminiscent of texas chainsaw massacre Mm -hmm. the original where with that film you knew it was fictional but that based on a true story like had so many people just freaked 
out. And this does exactly the same thing. And it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, they did that with The Last House on the Left, too. Mm -hmm. And they said, based on a true story, really what it was based on is actually a myth. Right. Like a way back myth. So take from that what you will. But that was how Wes Craven was getting people to, you know, freak out about his movie all the way back in the 70s. And then you have Texas Chainsaw. You had Cannibal Holocaust. There was an Orson Welles found footage film that actually came out before Cannibal Holocaust, mm-hmm. but it wasn't released widely until like way later. Right. So unless you were like way down deep in the know on Orson Welles, <laughs> you would never have known that that movie came out prior to Cannibal Holocaust. One of the ways that we can kind of gauge whether or not a found footage movie is effective is the fallout or how many people think it's real after the fact. And like Cannibal Holocaust is a great example of that because Ruggiero Deodato actually had to go to court multiple times and prove that he didn't murder anybody. Mm -hmm. I think he did get brought up on charges of animal cruelty though because that shit really did happen. But he had to prove that some of the actors were still alive because of how realistic this movie was. And, you know, 1980, nobody had a freaking computer. Right. You know, outside of the military or like, you know, (laughs) giant rooms. Yeah, exactly. Rooms worth of computers. So people were like, yeah, no, you got to go find these actors and actresses and you need to bring them here to this court. I think he was actually brought up on charges in France, even though he's Italian, because the movie was so gruesome. And although, you know, the Blair Witch, like, as far as I know, nobody had to go to court for this one. No, not to my knowledge. But it's still kind of like how we can judge how effective both the marketing around the movie, you know, the fact that they had like published Heather's Diary mm-hmm. and uh, online and they had like all these files and stuff that you could access online, which was very new. Yes. Very different. And after the whole like, you know, diary thing. This movie came out and very shortly afterwards, it was kind of blown like, okay, these people aren't really missing. They're alive. They, you know, this is all fake. But the uproar, the absolute uproar around this movie when it came out was just like, if you weren't around to experience it, it's very difficult to, especially now, you know, post everybody having a computer in their house and and a tiny, super powerful computer in your pocket. Yeah, It's so hard to kind of explain that like, immersive media experience now. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really interesting to to have seen this film come full circle in that regard because I feel like once it was debunked and it was revealed to be a work of fiction, it then instantly became the subject of a lot of parody, a lot of really harsh criticism. And I think that people weren't able to see what a great film it was unto itself, like even as a work of fiction, like how effective the filmmaking is, uh, how immersive it is. And what's really cool now is having seen it come completely full circle and to see how people are now celebrating it and people are realizing like, and talking about how important this film was. It's something that I've championed for a long time, because even when people were like, oh, that's so stupid. It was a trick, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, but do you understand what they had to do to fool people? Like, if you're interested in marketing at all, you're just like, this is genius. Like, I have often said, and I think people are starting to do this now, I wish more people would study the marketing campaigns that they did and why they were effective, because 
they've really worked. I can say as a young person at the time, you know, I was 15 when this movie came out, like as the primary audience for a horror film, like, yeah, it worked. They got me. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of whether or not you think the ending of this movie is fulfilling or satisfying or scary enough or whatever, the trepidation that people had going into this movie and not knowing what they were about to see, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, combined with the fact that like the pants were scared off of you in anticipation the entire time, yeah, I think is so important to discuss because just because a movie does not wind up the way that you assume it will or the way you expect it to or doesn't end up being scary or like the titular character, such in this case as the Blair Witch, does not ever appear in yeah. the movie. We don't see the Blair Witch on film until 2016. Right. Exactly. They did make a McFarlane movie monsters character out of her, though. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't yeah. Know that. Like That's the next year or something. But it was just something that McFarlane designed. Right. So it's like fake, it, you know, right. it's imagination, yeah. basically. Exactly. And just remembering, like, the cold sweat that you got, yeah. you know, <laughs> during the tent attack scene, hearing those rustling sounds in the woods. And I think it's especially important. And I don't know how other folks feel around the same age as me. I was born in 1990. So when this came out, I was nine. And... I remember having been backpacking and having spent time in the woods where I wasn't accessible to anybody and, you know, time prior to cell phones when I couldn't just call somebody for help. I remember how isolating it felt to be put alongside of these people and think they have no cord to the outside world. Right. All they have are these cameras that are recording this journey that they're going on. I'm believing it's real. And getting swept up in that and being like, oh, yeah, that would be awful to be out in the middle of nowhere and not know where I am, not have anybody else know exactly where I am or even how to look for me in these woods. Yeah. Wow. Even if you don't agree with the ending or you don't find the ending scary, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah. The lead up to that was scary. It was scary as hell. Yeah. And I think the part of it that was really scary for me is that it works on two levels. Like, yeah, it's totally scary, the sticks and the teeth and all of that, and to think that there is something supernatural out there in the woods. But what's also scary, as we were watching the film, we were talking about as femme people to be in the woods with two men that you don't know super well, who are yelling at you, who are kind of in an antagonistic position against you, like that alone is like, that's scary enough, even without the witch, you know, the possibility of the witch and or the serial killer, right? You know, because you've got kind of these two kind of ominous figures, neither of whom we ever see or, you know, looming over this story. But the scariest part are the real people. I mean, we say this over and over again in horror. The real people are scarier than the uh, monsters. Yeah, 100%. Just like Juliet said, we were discussing this while we were watching and thinking like, imagine being all alone with nobody you can go to. You're basically being harassed by yeah. two men night and day. You can't escape that. It's not safe for you to go out by yourself. Because, you know, you have these two other people that are with you, number one. Number two, you don't have a map at a certain point. A compass will only get you so far. 
they're not familiar with the area. And so the two lifelines that she has are these men who are harassing her and antagonizing her this entire time. Not to mention, we also discussed kind of the way that they filmed it and they kind of yeah. like closely cropped the shot because we're shooting on 16 millimeter part of the time. And then I don't know what other camera they used. Uh, DV. DV. Okay. So you're using DV for part of the time, which is what has the microphone and then yep. 16 millimeter black and white as well. So you have these two cameras, no other you know, attachments to the outside world. And so you're getting this like really cool cropped in effect and all this like black space on the sides because, you know, this wasn't shot in widescreen. This is 1998, 99. Yeah. They say that this is 94, although I don't actually think it was that far back when they started recording or started shooting for the film. No, it wasn't. But 93, 94 is about when they wrote the original script. Okay. Or the original concept for the script there's not an actual like line for line script for this film right yeah so this is a time when you have this like really cool cropped in effect so you're feeling very claustrophobic very present in the moment and heather has nobody else to turn to she cannot escape these two men because there's no way for her to get out yeah number one and number two this wasn't her car so she doesn't have the keys right this is josh's car that they've taken. So even if she got back to the car, I mean, theoretically, you could have found somebody else in the parking lot, but who knows? So she's by herself, reliant upon these two men who are harassing her this entire time, day in and day out, and the looming threat of hillbilly, serial killer, witch, whatever is happening yeah. in the woods. Or just surviving yeah. alone in the woods, running out of food, not right. being able to find water, getting hurt. Yeah. It's very, very, very scary. And having the best intentions getting into this and not saying that women should ever have to protect themselves because femme folks should not have to protect themselves at all times and be constantly on the watch. I totally disagree with that thought process. But on the other hand, like having really good intentions and then being put into this situation or finding yourself in this situation where you're like, oh, shit, what do I do? How do I get out of here? and not coming up with any viable solutions. Yeah. It feels very claustrophobic. And Definitely. very, very, very possible. Oh, yeah. And I think that's part of what made it relatable, perhaps, to a lot of mask people and men in the audience is, although they may not have identified with Heather's, you know, specific experience as a femme person, I think the experience of we're going to go out in the woods and do the thing and whether the thing is make movies, which had become a much more viable solution because of consumer camcorders. Like all of a sudden you had a whole lot of people just like this trio tromping into the woods to make their documentary or make their monster movie, whether it's, you know, we're going to go camping or fishing or whatever. Like, I think the journey is so relatable, even if you're not a filmmaker, that although Heather's concerns are very specific to that of a femme person, the danger that the overall group experiences and that experience of like being out somewhere like I think everybody's been on like a bad trip with friends, you know, or a bad trip where you're like, you're with your friend and then like they're a group of friends and you're like, oh, wow, I'm really not getting along with these people. And then something goes wrong or you're just kind of stuck there. Mm -hmm. Like it's such a relatable experience. Oh, 100%. I did want to kind of 
segue into the whole consumer camcorder market, I kind of wanted to talk about the nostalgia of watching the entire (laughs) process unfold. Because although my roots in filmmaking slash being a part of like a film project are certainly not as uh, in-depth as yours have been. Yeah. I remember that like beginning, like at the beginning of the movie, this is the very beginning. Like they've just picked up the 16 millimeter camera. Yeah. They're just getting ready. They're picking up Josh or picking up Mike or well, Josh and Heather are picking up Mike. And that kind of like, like high that you're running on Uh at the beginning of a project, you have this really solid idea in your head. You're ready to go. Everybody's rested and, you know, stoked and probably, you know, four cups of coffee deep and (laughs) you've got all your gear and you feel like super prepared and you've got this idea that you've imagined in your head and you're like, this is what I'm going to do. And then watching that like basically get squashed (laughs) yeah, over the course of this movie. Did it make you feel nostalgic about the film projects that you've worked on? A a little bit, yeah. I mean, I got my first Canon mini DV in 2002, so a little bit after this. And just like the possibility of like, you know, yes, like you could get a VHS camcorder, like, and there were certainly, you know, people you typically had to have a decent amount of money and they were big and they were bulky and they were a pain to use but the mini dv cameras like mine the one i have i still have it by the way i'll i'll throw a picture (laughs) on instagram of it or something but um you know i could throw it in a bag and you would throw the tapes in the bag and the possibilities felt really endless at that point with what you could do with that camera. Like it could shoot pretty darn good video. And especially when you were in an era where the shot on video movement was really starting to kick off, things felt very possible back then. So I could definitely, it was definitely nostalgic in in that regard. I didn't really, I'm trying to think if, that was early enough. Yeah, I didn't really do a lot with film sets until a little after that. But definitely this sort of idea that the technology made things possible was like very real. Like I can think back to my friend and I in college. We both had Canons. He had a nicer one than mine. (laughs) You know, us writing scripts and talking about like actually writing scripts that we could film like Mm -hmm. that were possible because we had these cameras you know so i think the the whole idea of like oh this is a very viable option for people yeah that felt really real for me yeah and i remember this is a time before our phones are like 160 gigs or whatever you know i always get the giant version of the memory on mine but remember when digital when your capability for digital memory was like tiny so oh, yeah <laughs> you know you'd get like a compact flash card and it'd be like okay well you got 256 megabytes what can you make in that <laughs> yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and in film wise like nothing so digital especially if you didn't have a lot of money to spend on stuff was not a viable option for a long time oh totally i mean i can remember when i started in audio like trying to save high quality wave files and then figuring out how to get them where they needed to go. And sometimes depending on the length of the piece, not having a flash drive big enough, you know, and now I'm walking around, I've got like in my bag right behind me, like a four terabyte drive, you know, a single terabyte flash drive, etc. You know, that house all of our archive files and things like that. 
you know, when I think about like our project files for every episode are about two gigs. Yeah. It's like, how how would you even handle the storage of that? Right. It was exactly. really hard back in the day. But even then, like everything felt possible. Yeah. Yeah. And tapes like were still relatively cheap. Yeah. Like they're not super cheap, you know, still like 20 bucks for a two pack or whatever. It was mm-hmm. like 17 $18 for yeah. a while for a two pack of those but you could record i think that each one of those were like 90 minutes or something the d yeah. the mini dv and then you had like tapes and stuff too that you could still record on so especially this movie i think a hundred percent was like the reason why a lot of filmmakers who now are very popular and very widely known and are making these huge blockbuster movies i think this movie specifically in 99 was like the reason why they were like you know what they made a shitty movie which is not a shitty movie but like a a shittier quality movie they made that why can't i do it and so they started picking it up and being like okay i'm gonna start recording and then eventually you know you have ari Aster, you have robert eggers yep, you have definitely. eli roth 100 yeah. percent eli roth mm-hmm. and that's so exciting to see like this world of possibilities open from this movie that we thought was going to be like a podunk splash in the water and it ended up being like this huge tsunami yeah that, of really influential horror you know to your point about the tapes the other thing i think it's important to remember is with any sort of film format, you had to get it developed and processed. Yeah. So you had to send it out to a processing house and that was more money. You know, you had to have the camera, you had to have the film stock, you had to have the processing, and then you had to edit. Well, with mini DV, not only did you not have to get it processed, you just had to upload it to a computer. Right. But those tapes were available everywhere. Right. You could get them at walmart Mm -hmm. you know that's where most people bought their tapes was like oh i'm gonna run to walmart and get some mini dv tapes in the photo section yeah you know it was just it made things so much more accessible and it was a it was a really exciting era i think that consumer camcorder era because people you know my partner being one of those people that's how he started making movies people with ideas could just try Mm -hmm. you know you could just say hey I have access to this camera. I've got the stuff. It's all within reach. I'm just going to make something. I'm not going to wait for somebody to give me permission to make something. I'm just going to make something and see what I can do with what's around me. And so many people got their start that way. And there's a whole really neat wing of horror that is those films, you know, and they're varying levels of quality and storytelling, but it's kind of neat to see that process unfold, you know, on a very DIY level. Yeah. One of the best Joba Briggs rants, I think, is about just make it, you know, don't wait, don't wait for viability, don't wait for money to come in, don't wait for somebody to give you permission, just make the movie. Yeah. Because nobody is ever going to do that. Nobody will, Mm -hmm. you know, stoop down to you and say, hey, now it's time for you to make this movie. Now you're allowed to. You just need to do it. Right. And just keep doing it. You know, don't stop. Don't let the world crush you. Don't let the fact that your movies aren't making any money or, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody likes them at this point. Like any director who's made a blockbuster at one point in time was making shitty movies. So like there was never somebody who like first time they picked up a camera slam dunk and then like it was just all major blockbusters from there on out. Everybody started somewhere. So make your movie, mm-hmm. use your iPhone, you you know, whatever. And I'm just going to echo that. Like, obviously, if something as small as the Blair Witch Project spawned an entire, like, several phases yeah. of found footage horror movies, then 
there's room for the next thing, Mm -hmm. you know, room for the next iPhone movie or whatever. I know that we talked about Skinamarink a little bit on our hot take of it, but Skinamarink is like one of those movies. Yeah. Where it was made on very little means. It really incorporates that like feeling of like immersive horror. Yeah. Yeah. And that one wasn't for everybody. And it definitely was not as prolific as this one. Mm -hmm. It also didn't have like super intense fake out marketing ploy. But yeah, like just saying, you know, if this movie could be the thing that spawned this entire new phase of a genre, then your movie could be the next one. Exactly. So keep making them. Yeah. Make stuff. Also, before I get to the negatives of this movie. So 1999, I was in fourth grade. I remember going into fifth grade. There was this huge resurgence of urban legends and like local yeah. you know, folk tales and stuff. Yeah. And I think that it was specifically tied to this movie. I could see that. Like everybody picking those back up, picking up those like local folk tales or these urban legends being passed along or people being like, you know, oh, I heard that something evil happened in that house, like the Blair Witch, you know, stuff like that. I think it was this and that horror film Urban Legend that came out in 1998. Right. I think it's a combination because I think that was very based in fiction but stoked people's interest but this like was purported to be although the writers completely invented the Blair Witch like they did a lot of work to sort of build up the mythology I think this really pointed people toward not just the sort of mass urban legends but those local like haunted Ohio Mm -hmm. kind of things that are really localized to a place like Mm -hmm. people kind of diving into their local lore like Oh, what's the creepy legend in my town? Yeah. Or like, oh, that weird house on the hill that's, yeah. you know, surrounded by trees that nobody's ever lived in. What's the deal on that? And then mm-hmm. like making shit up to, yeah. you know, around that. I did read in the trivia that the woman who's holding the kid at the beginning of the movie uh-huh. who's telling the story, she made all that shit up on the spot. Yeah. They, they like, you know, they're like interviewing her and she's like, oh, yeah, you know, the Blair Witch Project or Blair Witch, I've heard of her. And like she made up the entire story herself. And like she was so unknown to the filmmakers that they couldn't even find her after the movie had this huge base to get her to sign a release. <laughs> they couldn't even find her. So to whoever that woman is, if you're still with us, Amazing. Yeah. And thank you for your ingenuity in creating this like really terrifying, scary story just off the top of your head and being willing to tell these kids with a camera. Yeah. And being so like matter of fact about it too. Like that's the great thing is her telling is so matter of fact. You're oh, like, yeah. oh yeah. It's totally a thing. Like yeah. that's the story she grew up with. Of yeah. Of course. And she like, it's very straight. She's like, you know, wrestling with this kid who's like, no, don't even tell a story. And the kid's, like, crying, and she's like, it's okay. It seems very real. Yeah. Like, one of those consumer interview things where they're like, have you ever tried Colgate toothpaste? Tell me about your uh, experience with that. (laughs) You know, that's what it seemed like to me was one of those situations. And and she seems like she's playing it so straight. Yeah. So the tactic they used for those interviews up front is that they got actual local people in Maryland – And they gave them the bare amount of information. They were just like, hey, we're doing this film. Some people are going to come up and ask you about the Blair Witch. It's an urban legend. You know, they gave them just like three bullet points and that was it. And the people 
those folks got to improv. They were not trained actors or anything. So the interactions between our three main characters and those people were like genuine, like, you know, going up to a stranger and asking them a question like person on the street style interviewing, which is like really, really brilliant. And Burkittsville only had 174 people at the time that the movie was filmed. So not exactly a huge place, you know, to kind of disseminate this information. And I'm sure they were probably pretty stoked at the time. At the time, yeah. When they were were (laughs) filming it. I bet you they were pretty stoked about like having a movie, even if it was fictitious, even though it didn't feature anything, any real lore, having their tiny, tiny, tiny Maryland town kind of featured in this movie. And maybe they changed their tactic, you know, later on about how they felt about it because they got their signs stolen. They got, they had a lot of people go into their woods and like trash them and all that stuff, which that really sucks. But yeah. At the time, they were probably pretty excited. Yeah. They had to demolish the house uh, yeah. because people kept uh, taking chunks of it as souvenirs and it was becoming really unsafe. Ugh. Yeah. To start off the negatives, Burkittsville, Maryland's sign got stolen like three times yeah. before they like redid the sign because there's like that iconic shot of the sign at the beginning of the movie. The woods outside Burkittsville, like people were going and like hosting Blair Witch parties and like trashing the woods, leaving a bunch of trash out there. I mean, that's a concern for any ecosystem is like people going out there and partying and then like leaving a bunch of trash and junk and like furniture and stuff like that. People dragging couches and shit out there and leaving them. So that became a huge thing. People legitimately getting lost out there (laughs) in, you know, quote unquote, in search of the Blair Witch. Yeah. And then this town gets descended upon by a bunch of crazy, like, horror fans, (laughs) you know. And so I'm sure that at a certain point in time, they did not have a very good opinion of the filmmakers at that point. Yeah. Although the filmmakers could never know that the movie was going to blow up like it did. Right, right. Yeah. It's um kind of a running joke between my partner and I. We go to Pittsburgh a lot and we're like, you know, I wonder if people, especially in Evans City, get sick of people asking about zombies, you know, because that's where Night of the Living Dead was filmed. And the answer is probably that said, they have really learned how to, as a community, lean into it a little bit mm-hmm. and celebrate that legacy. But I'm sure they had growing pains, too. Yeah. It can be a really hard thing. Because these are fringe things that we're talking about, like Evan City. That's yeah. like, you know, zombie movie. Sure, most people have probably seen those zombie movies, but the obsession is sort of fringe, you know? So, like, kind of having growing pains with, like, getting down with a very fringe aspect of horror in general because it's not like Hollywood where everybody knows that tons of movies are made in Hollywood and so you kind of expect that it's like okay this is like a real community right (laughs) with like people who just like work (laughs) yeah and like have totally normal lives that have nothing to do with zombies are probably like yeah so I work at this coffee shop and like three out of ten people are like get zombies you know tags <laughs> blah 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 and you're like yeah okay so i'm sure that the patience waxes and wanes oh i'm sure it does with that but it's also kind of cool to put your town on a map for one reason or yeah. another anyway <laughs> i just think that the Burkittsville people were probably like man i don't want to talk about any more of this blair witch shit yeah the blair witch oh, doesn't exist it, yeah yeah <laughs> let's talk about the jersey devil no <laughs> that's too far north So another thing I wanted to talk about in terms of negatives of this movie is the continuation of a trope that we see a lot in horror movies, which is female gets exploited 
and uh-huh. is put into a dangerous situation in film. Uh-huh. And although I don't think that is what was intended by Blair Witch Project, I like I don't think it was a male versus female thing, at least initially, like that wasn't the idea of the movie. It does fall into a trope that a lot of horror movies end up finding themselves in where a woman is exploited and uh-huh. is made to feel terrified specifically while the masked people in the movie are not. Uh-huh. Yeah. I just think that this kind of falls into that. What did you think? Did you have that? Did you find that experience in this? Yes and no. I think, you know, one thing that I really like about this movie is that Heather is the director, you know, mm-hmm. of this documentary. You know, she is not as we see and as X really parodies, she's not somebody's girlfriend who's along to do the sound or be the script supervisor and name only, that kind of a thing. She is in a leadership role that is very important. And I like her inclusion of the film because they could have very easily made this three dudes. Mm -hmm. And we would have all been like, yeah, it's three dudes making a movie. But to have a woman in the director's chair, as it were, is good. I think to my mind where the exploitation actually came in was in people's reaction mm-hmm. to the film. Heather became a really hated character and it really bothers me because like if anybody's the villain, it's Mike, mm-hmm. you know, and people's responses to Heather, the character, to Ray Hamp's acting mm-hmm. really bothered me because... She's just a woman out here being a woman and doing stuff and getting scared and whatever and responding like any other human person would. But somehow her femininity, her womanhood made her response to everything seemingly unacceptable to certain people. Mm -hmm. And like that really, really bothers me. Yeah. Mike is the villain in this movie because he, number one, he throws out the map, which, like, yeah. why would you do that? Even if you thought you were lost, like, you should still keep the map because it's helpful. Yeah. But also, like, nobody shits on him or, right. you know, nobody shits on Josh or Mike for their role in this film. Right. Like, And not only that, but this real world hate was translated, like this hate of the character in the movie was translated into real life and ruined her career. Like she was in a couple of bit parts after that, but the harassment got her to the point where she exited acting altogether. And now she works in the cannabis industry. Yeah. And changed her name because of it, too, because she felt like she couldn't use her real name anymore, her birth name. And now Josh and Mike, they both still have Hollywood careers. Yes. Josh most recently was in this movie, actually watched semi-recently called Torn Hearts that had Katie Seagal in it. And I actually really liked it. And he played a main character in that. At the time, I had no idea that that's who that was. Because, you know, he's older, he's taller, he's like filled out a little bit. He's not like the skinny kid that he was in this movie in the Blair Witch Project, but... That real world hatred had serious impact and consequences for a person who was specifically the minority, you know, the unprotected class of person in this movie. And I think that that is something that continues to occur today. And we don't talk about that nearly enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Because she is reacting rationally to, and while I will say, she can get annoying at some parts, but it's also a film situation. Like, this is a movie that they're making. Right. This is not indicative of real life. She's reacting 
rationally like she's upset she's hungry she's tired they've been scared they they're not sure where they are there's all this confusion happening and then mike is just yelling at her constantly and josh is like basically given up all hope on this project entirely and so she's reacting i think normally like what a yeah. rational human would be reacting and people took that criticism, this overblown criticism of her, and then translated into this real-life harassment. And I thought when I was watching it, the first thing that came to mind was Ahmed Best and yeah. and his portrayal of Jar Jar. And I know, like, uh, whatever, prequels, I don't give a shit what you think about them. I really don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't give a shit about what anybody thinks about them except for Juliet. <laughs> The gist of what I'm saying is that Ahmed Best was driven to, you know, trying to take his own life by the right. harassment that he received after his portrayal of a character, a fictional alien character. Yes. You know, contrived by George Lucas. And everybody hates on those prequel movies. But Natalie Portman has had a very successful career. Yep. Hayden Christensen, Ewan McGregor. I mean, freaking Ewan McGregor. Yeah. Ewan Liam McGregor Neeson. is everywhere. Like yeah. Liam Neeson. Ray Park has gone on, I feel like that's the most, like, that's the shittiest, like, cutoff of a villain ever is the Darth Maul thing. But Ray Park went on to have this huge career. Yep. George Lucas made a billion dollars off of his sale of Star Wars to Disney. But yet, Ahmed Best, the black guy who's working yeah. on this, one of very, very few people of color working on the set of this movie, is the one that's driven to suicide because people are so unrelenting with their criticism yeah. of a stupid character. It's not even like this isn't him depicting himself. Right. right. Freaking Naboo. Yeah. <laughs> but the harassment of him carried on to real life. And so that was just the example that I thought of like yeah. right off the top of my head. And I'm sure that there are others probably more relevant to this story. But it's just such a frustrating thing to see. Well, yeah. And to bring it back to Heather in the Blair Witch Project, it's really interesting to hear all of these opinions about how women in films should respond to scary or stressful situations. It's almost like, again, the whole like hysterical woman thing translated onto film. Um, I think about one of the criticisms of Midsummer, which is that Danny was too emotional. And I'm like, are you are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, but again, it's like, so, oh, OK, you know, and I, I feel a lot of a lot of parallels between those the two responses to those two characters of them being over the top with their reactions. Like, are you kidding me? She's in the woods you know, lost in the woods for several days with no help on the way. One of their people has gone missing. The other person is being openly antagonistic. You know, she obviously doesn't feel safe. How would you expect a person to react? Yeah, that's one of my main criticisms about like true crime podcasts, especially when they review like 911 tapes, is they're like, well, that person doesn't really sound very broken up Ugh. about it. And I'm just like, okay. This is why I can't even with true crime. <laughs> so I'm a fixer. So when a stressful situation happens to me, my immediate thing is go into action. Yeah. So if I came around somebody who was very hurt, which this has actually happened in my real life before, 
my first thing is I'm going to get on the phone and I'm going to get this person help. And I will sound very put together, yeah. even though my freaking hands are shaking. Exactly. You know, like one time that I'm just going to use this as an example, because this is a situation where I didn't know the person's name. I don't know them in real life. I worked at a public library and somebody had a seizure while uh-huh. I was on the floor and it freaked me out. I was very scared for this person. I didn't know if they had a seizure condition, which it ended up that they did have a seizure condition and they were okay. But I didn't know that. They weren't right. wearing a medical bracelet. So I immediately ran over to the phone. I got on the phone. I was very level-headed. They kept asking me, like, why are you using the desk phone? And I was trying not to answer because I'm, like, on the phone with 911, you know, like, trying to get this person help. And afterwards, they were like, oh, yeah, we didn't know that anything was wrong because you just sounded so calm on the phone. And I was like, yeah, well, that's how I sound. Yeah. So if that were to happen to me where, like, I see somebody bloody, you know, um, hurt or bloody or dead, I feel like I would be that person where they'd be like, that person, she killed them. Yeah. That person killed that person because they didn't sound scared enough on the phone. Conversely, you know, I've seen some people who have been on the phone after committing some really heinous shit and sound 100% appropriately like upset and yes, and it end up being yeah. all bullshit. Yeah. So all that to say, like, F the emotional police. Like, yes. Agreed. <laughs> maybe that should be the name of the episode. That might be. <laughs> like, your emotional policing does not do anybody any good. And right. you have no idea what that person is going to react in, you know, if it's going to be fear or panic or anxiety yep. or if they're going to start laughing because they don't have any other way of expressing this emotion. Yeah. Your consumption of media and thinking that people need to act a certain way when they're feeling scared or hurt or whatever is entirely unhelpful. And it sets this really unrealistic expectation of how people are quote unquote supposed to act yeah. in these situations. Exactly. And then you have people like true crime podcasters or whomever, YouTubers, whatever, you know, media critics who are like, well, that's not reality. Yeah. Or they're crying too much, like Danny and Midsummer. Yeah, her parents were murdered by her sister who committed suicide in a really heinous way. And then her boyfriend is an asshole the entire time afterwards. Wouldn't you cry? Uh, Yeah. Out of frustration, like you're in Sweden in a situation you can't get out of and all of your family is dead. Yeah, exactly. What the hell do you expect? Yeah. So that's what I'm going to... I know I just went off on a total rant about that. No, it's a total, like, it's such a valid rant. And I think also, like... I can say having the year I've had, even if you think you know how you would react, uh, you cannot say in confidence, (laughs) you know, you cannot in confidence predict how you would react to a really horrible situation until you're in it. Right. Because I have surprised myself this year, you know, either keeping it together in situations that are unimaginably terrible and also, you know, not being able to hold it together at the drop of a hat or in one situation, like kind of laughing and just being like, I don't even know why I'm laughing right now, but here we are. Yeah. So like, I I just, yeah, the whole emotional policing thing, it's bad enough in real life, but like, you don't need to do it in media, especially to the point that you're like harassing actors like harassing actors is bad by the way don't do that yeah like harass actors that deserve it yeah (laughs) like people who have committed horrible horrible acts against people cough cough uh jonah hill is who i'm thinking of right now oh yeah no kidding like and you know there's a lot of like bad actors right now ha 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 
pun intended. Yeah. Um, based because we're right now in the middle of this gigantic Hollywood strike. So like there's tons of actors that have been like on the side of on the side of like big studios and I'm just like Bleh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. PS major solidarity to everybody out there on the front lines. Yeah. Cause uh yeah. We a union household over here. Yeah. <laughs> and we totally think that people should be paid reasonably and fair. You know, funny segue. I was actually reading about, um, I follow Laverne Cox, which I know she's not in this movie, but I follow Laverne Cox on Instagram. And she posted the other day about the other people who are working on, she was not interviewed, but Time interviewed some of the actors and actresses who were making Orange is the New Black, uh-huh. which huge if you've not seen it it was a huge blockbuster yeah. Genji Kohan he wrote Weeds which was a, another big huge blockbuster television show but he wrote Orange is the New Black and adapted it off of a book for Netflix uh-huh. and it was huge I mean I think it's like five or six seasons it was one of the biggest like best known Netflix blockbusters in yeah. terms of series and some of the actors were paid so little because they don't get residuals right some of them were paid so little they couldn't afford to buy the DVD sets and they were like contemplating going on food stamps. And these are people who are like in four seasons, main characters, you know, in the show and they're making nothing. Yeah. Ron Perlman had a really good TikTok just yesterday, I think heading into the strike about folks who would like the protections and benefits of SAG-AFTRA, but don't make enough on their sets to even pay for the healthcare that they get through SAG-AFTRA. Yeah. It's Ron uh, Perlman had some strong words. I know. <laughs> I know. He was like talking about people like, oh, the only way that the writers are going to come back is you make them lose their houses. And he's like, you want to know how you... just go look up his yeah, TikTok. Just look up Ron Perlman on TikTok. <laughs> but yeah, solidarity with those folks. And I think this is a indicative of 2023 United States in general and the post-capitalist nightmare that we're living in. Everybody deserves to have some form of security as they age from their jobs. Yep. And although we're focused on this because this directly impacts the media that we consume and how we distract ourselves from the post-capitalist hellscape that we live in, it also is indicative of all industries, like yes. even those that aren't unionized. Everybody deserves to be able to make a living off of their passion. Yep. You know, and that extends to folks who work in Hollywood. You should not be on food stamps. You know, you should not have to worry about how you're going to pay your rent next month or whatever if you're working consistently. And if that means getting rid of the residual system and figuring out a more equitable and fair way to pay people and also cutting some of the profits off of the big studios, yeah. so be it. You know, just F all of the the garbage yeah. discussion around that. Like people should be protected. Every person who works and every person in general should not have to worry about housing, food, or healthcare. Yeah. Period. That's, exactly. You know, whatever. Yeah. You can you can cancel Attack of the Final Girls, but yeah, we no, exactly. we think that. <laughs> exactly. So Well, and I'll I'll kind of tie this back to this movie, which is that ultimately a lot of this is happening at this moment in history now when the majority of our major Hollywood studios are owned by tech companies who are not in this for the artistry of film, who see film and media not as art, but as a commodity, as another widget to sell. And I would love to see, I don't know, I don't know exactly what I would like the outcome to be because we do still need like 
big studios and small studios and indie filmmakers for like an awesome film ecosystem. Like mm-hmm. all of those things are important, but I would love to see some decoupling. It really annoys me every time like Universal Pictures comes up and it says a Comcast company. Right. Like, and I know that that's not new. You know, we had this with AOL, Time Warner, Warner Brothers, et cetera. Now Warner Discovery, but like this... I don't know, this intermingling, I just really wish we could decouple some of that because I think it would open up more space for more independence to have a little more share of the pie here. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to do that. Somebody smarter than me (laughs) needs to figure that one out. But uh, I would love it if that could be uh, an end result of this. I mean, it's happening with video games, too. We just saw that Microsoft, like big, you know, they had that big win and they're basically going to have a monopoly when it comes to. Did they buy Activision? Activision. That's right. And Activision owns Blizzard or is that separate? I think it's the same. Okay, I thought it was the same, but I wasn't sure. But in either case, like in my experience, the best way to have a company that's run for and by the people is to have a cooperative, you know, so maybe some sort of like better cooperative situation where unions are working directly with the studios, but they also have a vested interest in the studio. I don't know exactly how it's going to look. And I know that we're going to be feeling the impact of this probably in the next year or two, where we're going to have a real like dearth of movies and television shows and streaming, especially, which has become so, so big in the past three years, you know, post-pandemic, which it was big before that, but I think especially post-pandemic, you know, being the primary form of media that people are consuming. And we're going to have to figure out some other way where we can't just cancel, shelve, delete television shows and then refuse to pay royalties when somebody has worked heart and soul on this. I also have never thought it was fair that the residual amount that you get is based off of the continuing popularity of whatever you worked on. Because it's like people who worked on stuff that was garbage and, you know, is not found anywhere worked probably just as hard as people who were on big blockbusters. So I don't think it's fair, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah. F the residual system. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I want to take it back to the emotional policing thing a little bit because it ties into one of the most popular fan theories about this film. There has been a fan theory floating around the internet for quite a few years now that actually there is no Blair Witch, that there's nothing supernatural whatsoever about this film, that actually Josh and Mike were in on it the whole time and killed Heather. It's so awesome that we're getting fan theories about this even, you know, 25 years later. Yeah. Because I remember when this hit Reddit or something, I forget what it was, but it hit uh, mainstream and people were going absolutely bonkers over it. Yes. And I'm like, this is such a fascinating take on this movie because if if you're rewatching it and then you're thinking that and thinking like Josh and Mike are, you know, in cahoots with one another... And Heather is kind of odd man out. It totally makes so much more sense. Yeah, it does. It's a really interesting theory. There are points for and against it as Mm -hmm. to how the movie supports or refutes that theory. If you take this movie in isolation, the theory can stand up if you include uh, the 2016, which is just called the Blair Witch into it. That theory falls apart a little bit. Mm Nonetheless, it's an interesting theory. I wonder, though, because we were talking about Heather being kind of the odd person out, 
Do you think that theory would exist if these were three men or three women? No, I don't think that it would exist if they were all the same gender expression. And I will pause it to you after we finish discussing this. The other fan theory yes. that I read, I absolutely think that that is a fan theory that's hinged on the idea of femme exploitation in yeah. movies. And that's why it exists or that's why people thought of it. Because if it was just a third dude, you know, even if he was going through the exact same emotional hoops that Heather was going through, I think that that would not be a fan theory. Yeah, I agree. But to reply to that, I read a different fan theory that Heather is the killer and that she killed Mike and Josh, which and, you know, for whatever you want to take that for. But the interesting things that kind of bolster that idea and that fan theory are that in that really iconic scene where it's like just her face and everything's yep. dark behind it, she immediately apologizes to Mike and Josh's mom. Yeah. She's like, I'm so sorry. And so they think like the fan theory says that that's her apology for what she's about to do. Also, Heather has the compass the majority of the time. So she knows where they're going. Potentially, she's mapped out this route and she has told them multiple times that she knows where they are. And like maybe her being hysterical or being upset is like sort of a fake out Uh to them to kind of like get them to think, you know, that she's not in a position of control and then luring them to the house. And then like because we never see her on camera. We never see Josh afterwards. We see Mike in the corner at the very end of the movie, but we never see Heather. We just see her drop the camera. Right. And her screaming stops. Yeah. So we don't really know what happens. I don't know. I like that theory more for some reason. Yeah. But but the other thing is that the first theory that you said that Mike and Josh were trying to kill Heather, there's a scene where Josh says to Mike, after he admits that he kicked the map into the river, he says, that's not what I brought you out here for. And you could think that that is, you know, that's not what I brought you out here for in terms of like making this movie. But also, why would he say it like that? That is a big supporting moment to that theory. That's one of the moments. There are several that people that ascribe to that theory or have explored that theory point to. Yeah, because one of the things people say as a refutation would be, well, they didn't know where they were going. And Heather had the compass the majority of the time. So why would they go out there? And if you follow along that line, it's possible in this fan theory that Mike and Josh end up dying too. Like right. they just starve, you right. know, like they, they go out there with the purpose of killing Heather, but they end up starving because they really don't know where they are. Yeah. So in either case, like, I love that we're still talking about fan theories for this movie. Definitely. Like we're not just taking it for what it is on face value that we're still going kind of along this line and and figuring out Like, what does this imply? What does this mean? You know, I like that. Definitely. So speaking of the ending, let's talk about the ending. It's iconic. Yeah, it's super iconic. Okay, so I'll relay my initial experience watching this movie and then how I found the ending. Okay. So the whole time I watched this movie, I watched it for the first time in 1999. I'm nine years old. We stole this tape, this VHS tape from my best friend Katie's older brother he had it in his room. We weren't supposed to go in there, but we took it anyways. And we watched it in our VCR. The whole time, I'm shaking during this movie. Oh, yeah. I'm like freaking out. I'm nine years old. I haven't seen anything scary before in my life. Well, it's I had, so but... scary for a nine-year-old. Yeah. Especially because you're like, oh, there's nothing supernatural happening yet, but I'm still freaking out. Yeah. You know? 
when we get to the ending, and I remember thinking, that's the end? <laughs> like, that's it? <laughs> you know, and at the time, I remember being very unsatisfied with the ending because I was imagining that this was all building up to some big bad or yeah. some big scary moment, right? And now in retrospect, you know, near like 25 years later, well, not quite 25, but, you know, many years later, I'm thinking like, well, yeah, I can kind of see how people would not like the movie or not want to give it a chance based off of that because it like builds up to this big ending and then it kind of like, it's like a little bit of a mild, you know, kind of choose your own ending type yeah. situation. But on the other hand, now that I'm older, and sort of one of the things we talked about while we were watching this is the unseen that is yes. scary, like the unseen horror. There's a moment after the tent attack where they're running through the woods and there was a moment where Heather goes, oh my God, what was that? The cameraman was supposed to pan and show the witch like in white kind of off in the distance, but he didn't. And they didn't reshoot that bit of footage because it, it was probably pretty intense to film in the first place because they're running through the woods, hoping that they don't trip over something and fall, break the camera and all that. But it's the unseen that you don't know that ends up being a lot more scary. Yeah. And Heather's demeanor changes entirely after that moment. And she's like super freaked out. And then later when she finds Josh's tongue or whatever, you know, wrapped up in the in the sticks, she's even more terrified. So if you kind of follow that through line and then we see, you know, Mike kind of facing the corner at the end of the movie and not knowing what else is happening in the basement or what have you, really super, super scary. Yeah. Even though when I was nine, I was like, that's it. <laughs> and that's kind of what I was mentioning before about like remembering the experience that you had yeah. watching the film. Even if you felt like the ending was not what you expected, shaking during watching the entire right, rest of right. the movie is still, that's still iconic. That's still worthy of talking about. Yeah. What did you think about the ending? I loved it. I found it really deeply unsettling. So I saw this in the theater when it came out. I'm not even sure how we got in because it was rated R. Oh, yeah. I have I have no memory of how we pulled that off, but we did. Several friends and I went. Nice. And I know that in our group, there were some mixed feelings about the ending. I liked it because it was deeply unsettling. Now, I was already watching the X-Files at this point. Um, so I liked sort of vague, unexplained, yeah. you don't have to wrap it up in a bow, that kind of a thing. Like, I was already like in that headspace. So I was there for it. Other people had kind of the same response that you did initially. But the interesting thing that I found is that after watching the movie, we kept talking about that ending. Mm -hmm. You know, did the Blair Witch do that to him? Was it the spirit of the serial killer? Did the Blair Witch possess the serial killer? And that's why he killed the kids? Mm -hmm. Those handprints on the, the wall. All the handprints, yeah. Did something supernatural knock Heather down and silence her? But is Mike actually the one that's going to kill her? Or is she the one that's going to kill him? Or Is he already dead? Is he already dead? dead like we you know we couldn't stop talking about it and some people in our group were real freaked out about people like you could kind of prank them and like stand in a corner and it would freak people out yeah so as much as it might have been an initial disappointment i think it got in people's heads in yeah. a really awesome way and it's unexplainable it's like yeah it, there's not a reason why somebody standing silently in a corner and not moving is unnerving 
I'm sure that there's a way to like explain that psychologically, but it is unnerving. Oh, it's very unnerving. <laughs> Even in complete light, you yeah. know, like that idea of rounding a corner and seeing somebody standing there because is terrifying. Because it's illogical. Yeah. Because yeah. like, why would a grown ass adult just stand in a corner? Yeah. You know, like to me, it just indicates that something is wrong. Yeah. Yep. And like, what happened to Josh? Where right. is Josh? We haven't seen him since he vanished. Is he dead? Is he the one who knocked Heather down? Right. Is he murdering? Is he possessed now? So many questions. Yeah. Yeah. I love and the it. the fact that it just cuts to black after that. Yeah. And like, at the time, you know, still thinking that this is a real thing that happened, like, it's totally plausible that you wouldn't get to see the quote unquote money shot. Like right. that you're not going to get to see what actually ended up happening immediately afterwards. Although you do in the 2016 one. Right. <laughs> but not knowing at that point what happens and just kind of being left with this sense of like incompleteness. Yeah. That was also an era when Marvel had not trained us all to sit through the credits yet. <laughs> so, you know, the screen goes black and it stays black for like a beat and a half until like the credits start. And the credits are all very logical credits for a documentary. Like, oh, here's the director. Here are the producers. They don't do cast credits till much later. So it's also very plausible that if you, like me, were in a group of teenagers that went to see this movie and thought it was real, saw the end, it cut to black, and nothing else happens, and then the director credit pops up, you're up and out. You're like, oh, I'm done. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and now, too, like, we're talking 2023 world. If you watch this movie now, then I could see, and not understanding the kind of media frenzy that was happening at that time, having experience with a ton of other found footage horror movies that yeah. maybe have a more satisfying or more literal or direct ending. And going back and watching it, you'd be like, wow, that was kind of a letdown. Yeah. You know, people talked about talk this movie up so much. But being a person who lived in ni 1999 when this came out, like I can say for sure that this was the first of many experiences where I was like, oh, God, it's like the feeling I had when I came out of It Follows. And I was like looking uh -huh. at all the random people around me. I'm like, oh, God, is that person like, <laughs> is it is it imbued is it slowly by the getting closer to me? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> is that like, is that, you know, a dead relative that's walking towards me? Yeah. You know, like. So it was it was scary in a way that is unexplainable to somebody who didn't really live through that and has yeah. maybe had better or more literal, definite experiences with found footage at this point. So I could totally see how people would find it unsatisfying at this point. But I think that the fact that we're still talking about it and there's still, you know, like what happened afterwards uh -huh. conversations is like chef's kiss. Definitely. All right, so next time on Attack the Final Girls, we are going to throw it way, way back, and we're going to cover a Spanish horror film from the early 70s, one of Juliet's favorites. I love this one so much. <laughs> we're covering Tombs of the Blind Dead, which I don't think I've ever seen all together in one sitting, so I'm very excited to revisit this one. I always feel like we have so much to say about, like, early and mid 70s European horror. So very excited. Yeah, this one is a visual delight. 
the uh, creature design and the blind dead is one of my favorite things. <laughs> this franchise has so much going for it. I love all uh, four of the original films. There have been some sort of modern takes on them a little more recently. But yeah, Tombs of the Blind Dead is something that I got introduced to that I absolutely enjoy. And I'm so excited to talk about it. Yay! Yay! Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.